Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with Whitney Bryan, who covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. In her latest story, Josh McWhorter, who struggled with addiction for years, was given a chance to get clean. But everything changed when he tested positive for COVID-19. Whitney, how did you get this story? Ted, this story came to us from a couple of freelancers who reached out to me because of some of my mental health and substance abuse reporting in the past. Um, Ellie Lightfoot and Catherine Hurd emailed us about a story that they had been reporting since the fall of 2020. Um, an Edmund mother named Lisa Scruggs, she had reached out to them about her son, Josh. He was kicked out of a court-ordered rehab facility after testing positive for COVID. And he wasn't the only one. And, you know, this is exactly the type of story we're looking for, stories about vulnerable Oklahomans who are being let down by the systems that are, you know, put in place to help them. So who are Ellie and Catherine and why did they come to Oklahoma Watch? Ellie and Catherine are part of UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Um, They actually recently won a George Polk Award for um, a story that they did on the rise of far-right extremist groups. And they reached out to us because of some of my previous reporting on mental health and addiction, and also because they were looking for a local home for their investigative reporting. They wanted to work with an outlet that really knows Oklahoma and could add some context to their reporting. And of course, collaboration is a a key for us. We've been doing a lot of that lately. Uh, Jennifer Palmer has recently been partnering with The Frontier, and I'm working with KGOU now on another investigation. So that's really uh, part of our lifeblood. So the three of you started reporting this story, gosh, almost two years ago. What took so long? Well, a lot of things held this story up, um, most of which was the accountability piece of the story. You know, we immediately started asking who was responsible for what happened to Josh. Uh, Catherine and Ellie brought us a lot of detail from Josh's mom about his life and, and what happened to him. Um, But for us, in an investigative story, the accountability piece um, is is vital, and that was missing. So that's when we really started digging into what should have happened in Josh's situation, what types of protocols are in place to prevent things like that from happening, uh, scouring documents and, and details and that kind of thing. So what makes you stick with it over two years to get one story done? Well, for me, this story was really about holding these powerful systems to account. Uh, That's another part of our mission at Oklahoma Watch. And there were a lot of promises made to Josh and to his mom. Um, The court promised to help him by sending him to treatment instead of prison. A nonprofit called Team promised to, you know, help find him a bed, delivered him from the jail to the rehab facility. Then the rehab facility is promising to provide, you know, 45 days of treatment and counseling, peer support. But after he tested positive, all of those entities dropped away and the only person left to help was Josh's mom. 
So who was responsible for Josh at that point? We're talking this was uh, effectively court-ordered rehab, right? It was a, a diversion from rather than going to jail. So um, it, he gets to uh, the rehab center, right, to Roback, and comes down with COVID. Uh, as you just mentioned, mom is the only one uh, who's kind of willing to take responsibility at this point. But, but who else had a hand in there? Well, as I just mentioned, there were a lot of entities involved in getting Josh to that point. So, you know, frankly, we still don't have a clear answer to that. We contacted the judge in Josh's case, and she said, you know, the only thing she could have done is to put Josh back in jail. And that didn't seem like a good idea for various reasons, including that, you know, at that point, COVID was rampant in jails across the state, especially Oklahoma County, where Josh was. Um, and then also she's concerned about a lot of drugs being available in the Oklahoma County jail. So that that didn't seem like the right right plan. She pointed to team, the nonprofit um, that she collaborated with to get Josh a bed and said, you know, they really should have uh, stepped up and helped Josh to find somewhere to quarantine until he could go back to roadback. Um, but team told us that, you know, the pandemic was so unprecedented. Uh, unprecedented that a lot of folks fell through the cracks and and no one was prepared for scenarios like this. And then, of course, Roadback, the facility itself, you know, they actually receive public money from the state. They're overseen by the Department of Mental Health. But in that case, you know, both of those entities said we can't deal with COVID. You know, we deal with addiction. We deal with mental health. We can't deal with COVID. We have other patients here and we just don't have the capacity to, um, you know, to make that work. Okay, so uh, let's warn everybody. There's a little uh, spoiler alert here. If you haven't read the story yet, uh, you might want to go do that before listening to the rest of the discussion. This, this was a very personal story, and it was told mostly through uh, the eyes of Josh's mom, right, Lisa? Um, why, was, why was that the approach? Well, we really wanted the reader to feel the tension and the, the kind of chaos, uncertainty that Lisa was feeling when her son was going through this, was, you know, kicked out of a rehab facility that he was court ordered to be in because he came down with COVID. She's been trying to solve this puzzle of, you know, who's responsible for helping her son for for two years now. And we wanted the reader to kind of walk alongside her in that. There's still this stigma around people who suffer from substance abuse. But, you know, we thought we wanted to show that Josh was this pretty typical guy for the most part. You know, he wrestled in high school and um, had a, a girlfriend when he was, you know, uh, graduating high school. And But because of his addiction, he fell into some of these bad habits and became wrapped up in the justice system. Uh, at the end of the day, though, you know, he was still someone's friend, someone's son, and we wanted people to feel that. Uh, I don't think we've mentioned yet uh, what happened with Josh after he got kicked out of uh, Roadback. Yeah, unfortunately, um, Josh ended up overdosing uh, while he was sick with COVID in a motel that his mom put him up in um, in an effort to to keep him safe and quarantined and, and also keep her family safe and quarantined in her home. So Josh passed away uh, a few, uh, I think it was about a week and a half after he was kicked out of Roadback. 
And have there been any changes since Josh's death? There have been a few, uh, no major changes. So a few things we know is that after Josh was kicked out of Roadback, the rehab center created an isolation room for patients who had COVID. Former employees told us, though, that it was a small storage closet with no windows that was converted into this quarantine room where patients were forced to stay for a couple of weeks if they didn't want to leave. So not a very functional space for people who were coming down with with COVID. Uh, The Department of Mental Health has a clause in its contract with COVID. Uh, I'm sorry, with Roadback, that allows it to cut ties if Roadback isn't providing sufficient care. But the Department of Mental Health told us they didn't even know about Josh or that he had died or been kicked out of the facility until I called them for this story. So they have actually renewed their contract with Roadback uh, as of May of this year. And then Lisa, uh, Josh's mom, she collected a ton of records from rehab, from his court cases, um, she went to some attorneys and and said, you know, they just seem disinterested. She's really she keeps telling this story to people who she thinks can help answer some of these questions. But she says, you know, it's really falling on deaf ears. And because Josh, Josh is just often seen as another addict in people's eyes. And it, let's take a minute and just sort of sort of walk through the um Josh's timeline here, right? He, um, young man, single, he's had some, um, a couple of legal brushes, right, related to his uh, addictions, as we know, often the, the impetus for uh, relatively minor crimes often, right? And so in this case, um, it, as I read the story, he uh, he gets arrested, he goes to court, Judges trying to do what contemporary thinking tells us is the best thing for him, which is not to put him in jail, but to get him some help and send him to rehab, right? So um, seems like the right thing to do. Uh, team, uh, Chris Steele's nonprofit, right, steps in to assist with that, finds him a bed, transports him, takes him uh, to road back, right? They're they're facilitating what everybody would probably agree is is a good option for Josh. Um, he gets to road back where they can treat his substance abuse with the the support of the Department of Mental Health, right? Everybody's doing the right thing, and then he's in a building with other addicts receiving treatment. Comes down with a highly contagious, potentially fatal disease, and um, Roadback finds themselves kind of between a rock and a hard place, don't they? Because they can't risk infecting everybody else, but they they don't have any way to isolate Josh, right? So is the breakdown then they just send him out the door? Should they have had somewhere else they could have sent him? That's right. So Roadback is certainly stuck between a rock and a hard place here. I mean, as you said, you know, this was this was July of 2020. So at this point, you know, COVID was still fairly new, um, extremely scary. We we're talking about the early strains of COVID, which were much more severe. There were no vaccines, uh, no booster shots at that time. And Josh was living inside this facility with a lot of other people who were also receiving treatment. You know, they were in sort of a a uh, bunked bed type scenario where, you know, if one person gets COVID, the likelihood that it spreads is very, very high. 
However, um, Josh was tested before he left the jail to go to COVID, and he he received a negative test. So he did not have COVID, as far as we can tell, when he arrived at Roadback. And it was a few days into his stay there when he first started showing symptoms. So the likelihood that he got COVID from Roadback facility is pretty high. He starts to show symptoms a couple of days in, but it's a few days later before Roadback bothers to test him for COVID. And then a couple days after that, you know, the the positive test comes back. And then it's another couple days after that before they decide that he has to leave the facility. So when we were looking into this, you know, one of the things that really struck me about this situation is that while it absolutely is difficult for, um, you know, group homes like this to make these types of decisions and, you know, keep the most people safe as possible, I'm sure that was their goal. On the flip side, you know, Josh was sick for a week or more before they did anything about it. And then they sort of woke up one morning and said, here's what we've decided to do. You have to leave. And they told him to take his things out to the curb and sit on the curb and wait for his mom to come and get him. So there was certainly no plan in place. Um, There was no place for Josh to isolate, uh, even though the Department of Mental Health was recommending that these facilities, you know, create some sort of quarantine room for for people like Josh. So one of the questions I have um, as I think about it is, you know, he's still in state custody, right? He's been arrested. He's been ordered uh, to go to this uh, treatment facility. Um, It's not like anybody just has free choice here, right? There's a court order in place. He's supposed to be at Roadback. Um, How does Roadback decide, oh, you can leave? Not only can you leave, you must leave, right? A a, a jail can't decide on their own to just release somebody, and he's still in state custody. So, So how does that happen that they just open the door and kick him out while he's still under the control of the state? That is certainly the big unanswered question here. Um, we did talk to Roadback a little bit, um, but their director who was there when when Josh was there um, is not at Roadback any longer. And so we were unable to, to speak with that person. Um, and of course, the, the new team kind of said they, they can't speak directly to, to what was happening in the facility at that time. But what we do know is that Josh was no longer a ward of the state. According to the court, we spoke with the judge and asked that question. We said, is he a ward of the state at this point? And she told me no, because he was now part of this pre-trial release program under team's supervision. So that makes him essentially part of team, the nonprofit, and no longer an actual ward of the state. He's been released from state custody into team's custody, who then delivered him to Roadback's custody. So he's being transferred, essentially, the custody of Josh is being transferred from the courts to the nonprofit and then into this treatment facility. But you're absolutely right. I mean, he is still under a court order. He owes the state 45 days of substance abuse treatment in lieu of his prison time. So that was really the big question for us. They they can't just just set him free, as you suggested, um, without approval from the court and from team, which those entities said did not happen. The judge did not know that Josh was kicked out 
uh, for many days afterward until I believe team called her and team found out because Josh's mom was calling around and looking for help for what to do at that point. Oh, all right. Well, thank you, Whitney. You can read uh, Whitney's story on our website, oklahomawatch.org, along with all of her other investigative work on vulnerable populations. In this segment, I'm with reporter Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's been following the federal coronavirus relief dollars for Oklahoma students, and she's working now on a story about millions of dollars allocated uh, through Governor Stitt in January 2021 that has yet to be spent. Jennifer, how did this one come about? We have been working on a series of stories with the Frontier investigating Oklahoma's gear allocation, which was almost $40 million given to Governor Stitt by Congress. Every governor got a pot of money to spend on education. This is in addition to um, the schools, uh, you know, money that went directly to the Department of Education for schools. And when we were doing all of these stories, question we kept coming back to is, what about gear two? There was a second allocation um, also uh, by Congress, and this money we haven't heard anything about. And uh, how much How much money are we talking about? This was smaller than the first round. This was a total of $17.7 million that Oklahoma got. And what is that money supposed to be used for? Well, like the first round of Gear 2, this was specifically for governors to address issues in education. Um, could have been given to... Uh, public schools or um, higher ed institutions or to create different programs that would help students, um, particularly students who were, most of whom were learning from home at the time. You know, this was uh, January of 2021 when the um, year two was given. Um, and so a lot of schools were still virtual and there was a lot of disruption in our normal education. Now, is there a, a deadline? Has the, the administration uh, missed anything here to spend the money? I don't think so. There was a deadline of January of this year to award the funds. And the U.S. Department of Education defines that as, you know, making a contract or making a plan to use these funds. Um, the state insists that they have not missed that deadline, even though there's been no public announcement. I believe they have reserved those funds at the state level in order to stay in compliance. But there is another deadline of September of next year for whatever entity is given the funds to spend it. And that is coming up really quickly since we haven't even announced any programs yet. So your story is going to have details on some 19 projects that were proposed for, for that money, right? What do we know about those? So this was interesting. They haven't put out any public um, announcement or request for projects, but the um, a, a committee of state officials did send out an email la late last year in December. It went to um, certain individuals who signed up for press releases and the media, uh, and that request for ideas and proposals for the money came back with 19 requests. And we have copies of those. We have looked through those to kind of see what could have been done 
Um, in most instances, these proposals were to start this school year. So that's part of the problem with the delay is, um, you know, it, it will be too late for a lot of these projects. So do those organizations uh, know whether or not their their proposals are going to get funded or are they still waiting for an answer? We called them all. Um, they are all still waiting. They haven't heard. The email that they replied to that they proposed said that the hard deadline to announce, a, you know, where the money would be um, allocated to was Jan end of January, so January 31st, and they still haven't heard back. And it, if we do miss the deadline here, what happens to the money? If we can't spend the money in time, we will have to give it back to the U.S. Department of Education which has already happened with some of the original GEAR funds, although a lot of those were brought back and given to the State Department of Education to be granted to schools. All right. Thanks, Jennifer. You'll be able to read Jennifer's story on our website, oklahomawatch.org, where you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. In this segment of Long Story Short, we're talking to Ashlyn Huffman, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. She's working on a story looking at how the extreme heat can affect people in prison. Ashlyn, how did you come onto this story? Believe it or not, we found it on social media. On Twitter, there were some concerns rising that prisons in Oklahoma might not have air conditioning. But I recently discovered that only nine prisons actually have central air conditioning. So as we know, it's been hot. The extreme heat and lack of air conditioning in prisons sounds problematic. Is there a human rights violation there? Unexpectedly, no, there's not. Um, inmates are not, they don't have a right to have air conditioning as long as the facility is still giving them cooling equipment. So I spoke with the ACLU, ACLU, and they actually said it's not a human rights violation because DOC needs to be able to prove that their conditions are causing harm to inmates. So since they're administering these cooling equipments, it's not actually a violation. Now, you conducted a lot of uh, interviews. What were some of the, the major concerns that came up uh, during that process? So I spoke with a lot of people, including medical doctors, and um, the big concern was not the fact that they don't have air conditioning now. That was obviously a concern, but going forward with climate change and the fact that DOC doesn't have a plan to add air conditioners to the facilities that don't have them. Um, that was one of the big concerns is what's going to happen next. Obviously, it's been a very hot summer with degrees over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but in the future with climate change, that causes a lot of concern. So what, what challenges were there uh, when you first started looking into this as a possible story? Initially, I was told it was just a rumor, so I didn't have a lot to go off of as in trying to find sources for the story. And then once I did start to find sources, I was told different information from different people. So then I really had to dig in and figure out what is actually happening. So have there, there been any reports of heat-related illnesses? There haven't been. Um, DOC is very proud and um, have they've been very adamant to tell me multiple times that they haven't had any heat illnesses. But I was told that you can have a heat-related illness that doesn't present as a heat illness, such as if you're on anxiety medication, blood pressure medication, 
depression medication, if you have any kind of health, pre-existing health condition, you are at risk of getting a heat illness and it won't show up as a heat illness. Okay, now you you did mention that uh, although about half our prisons in the state are not air-conditioned, um, I think that that has to be uncomfortable for the staff as well and these these rather extreme conditions we've we've been having recently. Um, but but that there are other cooling devices that are made available to inmates. What mm-hmm. what kind of devices are we talking about? So some of the prisons have air conditioning in select units. Some have portable air conditioners, floor fans, um, water loop chillers, misters, and then they have unlimited access to ice and showers. Um, I did ask one of my sources if they had any concerns for a staff that was different than inmates, and surprisingly they said no. Um, Staff are not allowed to mid-shift get in the shower to cool off. They are not afforded the luxury of also having air conditioners All right. Well, thanks, Ashlyn. Uh, You'll be able to read Ashlyn's story about uh, the climate control situation in Oklahoma's prisons during a very hot summer, along with all her other investigative work on criminal justice topics on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.